This is Loudspeaker. Hi, everyone. It's Adrienne from Feminist Hot Dog. This week, I'm re-releasing an episode from season three called Confronting the Cash Bail System. Because I've been thinking about policing and criminal justice, well, for years, really, but in particular since Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. And then, of course, the day we heard that news was the same day that Makia Bryant was shot four times in the chest and killed by a Columbus, Ohio police officer who was responding to her 911 call. Makia was 16 years old when she died. And these events both demonstrate, I think, the incredible need we have currently for significant change in the way we think about the concept of public safety and why it is that not just the actions of police officers, but the whole system itself is fundamentally unsafe for black and brown and poor people. If you've listened to the show, you know that I have spoken in the past about why I think abolition is a feminist orientation. But even short of abolition, there are changes that we can be making right now, and confronting the cash bail system is one of them. Many people would say that Derek Chauvin's conviction was justice. But as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointed out in her remarks, Justice would be that George Floyd was still alive and not still alive and embroiled in some sort of endless detention situation because he was awaiting trial for passing a counterfeit bill and couldn't make bail. To find justice in this situation, we have to unwind all the way back to the point where he never needed to pass that bill in the first place, even if it was fake, which is still unclear, because he had everything he needed or that the cops never would have been called on him in the first place. And even if he did come into contact with the criminal justice system, there would never be a possibility that that system would incarcerate him, let alone kill him without a conviction. So justice for George Floyd is not the officer who shot him getting arrested or convicted. Nothing systemic changes. The likelihood that it will happen again doesn't change. The person goes to jail. His life ends, basically. Not that he doesn't deserve it. His family's lives are severely impacted. There's no healing. There's no change. No one is any closer to getting what they need. And the system itself is no closer to functioning in a way that harms fewer people. So I wanted to rebroadcast this episode because although abolition is on a lot of minds and mouths right now, I do think it's important to focus on smaller, more attainable changes to the criminal justice system. And the cash bail system is definitely an area where we can make our voices heard. I appreciate you all listening, and I'll be back with a new episode and a great new interview in a couple of weeks. Please don't go, I need you so I... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. It is July 2020, and it has been almost six weeks since George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis. And there are still folks in the streets, in cities all over the country, which is amazing. So because we as a culture tend to get bored and move on, I am really trying to do my part to keep us here and to recognize that as fucked up as 2020 has been, It has given us a combination of circumstances we haven't seen before, or at least not in this lifetime. And I feel really strongly that we need to stay present, keep fighting, keep talking, keep learning and unlearning, 
And most importantly, keep envisioning the future that we want. A woman who is part of my spiritual community recently commented that it feels like we are between worlds. We have shed the world where most people are willing to look the other way and just pretend that our systems aren't corrupt and racist. And now we're waiting, generating, constructing the next world. But we aren't quite there yet. And we know that the leadership in our country right now is also working as hard as they can to make sure that whatever comes next limits the power of the people as much as possible because they are terrified by what they're seeing. So that's where I'm at. We can't be complacent. We can't assume that Trump is going to lose in November. And we must keep imagining a future in which all people are free to thrive and love and learn and grow and a future in which no one lives in cages. So today, we're going to talk about an aspect of our criminal justice system that impedes that future for many people. And it's also something that has been in the news a lot lately, the cash bail system. I, like many people, had a vague understanding that cash bail is a bad deal, and I've given money to some bail funds due to COVID and also to help some of the protesters arrested recently. But similar to defunding the police, I didn't understand the nuances or the larger context of the cash bail system and what it might actually mean to end it. Luckily, I was able to connect with Ashley Edwards, a social worker and activist who helps run the bailout here in Montgomery. And I'm going to hand it over to her now to talk about what that is and how MGM bailout began. I have been searching for an organizing space that feels like home and Montgomery bailout is absolutely that. I believe I was brought to this work because as a social worker, I am in my day job often working with folks who have been disenfranchised or underserved by their communities. And I do think that there's a clear overlap with the same people who are being bailed out by our bail fund. We began in mid-March, around the time that many communities across the country were going into full quarantine mode. So we thought that probably the most dangerous place you could be right now at risk for contracting COVID is a jail. Our jails do not have the best conditions, and there's already such a lack of humanity given to people who are detained that we can't expect that that would change in a global pandemic. And in fact, that is even more reason we should work to start confronting the system of cash bail. I asked Ashley to break down the cash bail system for me step by step so I could really understand what it does, who it affects, and how it fits into the larger picture of the current reform conversations, as well as calls to abolish policing and prisons, which if you've been listening, is really the conversation that I'm here for these days. Say someone gets arrested and charged with a crime and they are immediately detained. In many state courts, crimes have an associated sort of cash bail amount that an individual must pay to be released before any hearings or trial is held in their case. So in essence, cash bail is like a debt, a 
person is asked to pay to the court system, that serves as a contract that that person will return to court. And it's really important to know that cash bail is really discretionary. It's not standard across all of these court systems. Judges have a lot of leeway to sort of raise or lower the amount of cash bail as they please. And often cash bail amounts can be really, really high, even for someone who might have been doing comfortably before they got arrested. So if a person doesn't show up to court, they then are forfeiting the bail amount that they paid. And that money is given back to the government. If they do show up to all their hearings, they eventually get the money back. But that could be less than what they paid if you are subtracting the fines and fees that are assessed after they are released or after they are convicted of a crime. So in many cases, people either don't get any of the money back or don't get the full amount of what they pay back. Bail bonds companies are able to allow someone to pay usually about 10% of the cash bail fee that they were assessed. So for instance, if your cash bail is $2,500, you can go to a bail bondsman and pay 10% of that. And then if you don't show up to court, you are then liable for the full amount to the bail bonds person. So in that sense, it's an industry that relies entirely on people not showing back up to court and is really preying on people who cannot afford full cash bail. So this is not an industry that has to exist or is helping anyone. It's really just reinforcing a system that keeps poor people in debt to the legal system. Cash bail is very common. It's the most common form of release. So some courts may, instead of cash bail, ask that you are released on your own recognizance. That's what they call it. And then you are released without having to pay anything. But there might be a fee that you are liable to pay if you don't show up to court after you are released. Or some systems have moved to a sort of assessment that evaluates whether you are, quote unquote, safe enough to be trusted to be released until your court hearings. So there are other alternatives to cash bail, but cash bail is the most common form of pretrial release. Okay. So for me, this is one of those things that because it seems like it's always been this way, that the injustice of it gets obscured in people's minds, especially people who don't live in over-policed neighborhoods. And this goes back to something we talked about in the last episode, that contact with the police is the gateway to the criminal justice system, and that in almost all cases, that is a bad thing for your life. And because we know black and brown people and neighborhoods are over-policed, this is a racialized injustice that so clearly privileges people with money. So we have to denormalize this and really hold it up to the light and talk about all the ways cash bail is not only racist, but exploitative. It's also based on assumptions about the likelihood of flight risk that, as Ashley explains, just are not true. The most egregious part of all of this is that there's this common idea that you are innocent until you're proven guilty. And cash bail sort of is the exact opposite. 
of that. You're basically guilty. So you have to prove you should be trusted to be let out by paying this ransom essentially to the government. Many people who want to abolish this cash bail system feel like the idea that people will just disappear is is just really lazy logic. It, if the courts were really interested in people coming back to court, they would spend money on notification systems to text or call people to remind them of their court dates, or they would pay for the transportation to and from court, or they could send people out into the community, volunteers or pay people to do public education on how the court process works, what to expect, when you should show up, what you should do when you show up. So if people are saying that, you know, folks will just disappear without this without this number on their head, then that's it's really lazy because there are so many other ways you could encourage folks to come back. If we did better public education, people would understand here I am having an opportunity to fight for myself in in court. Of course, I'm going to show up, you know, and I don't think that we're communicating that to the public. So it's just an excuse to say that cash bail is the only way we can ensure that people come back. I want to jump in here to clarify that this is not a small number of people we're talking about. I will link some articles in the show notes that break this down, but nationally, it's estimated that nearly 70% of people in jail are being held in pre-trial detention. That is over half a million people on any given day. Despite what I said before, it isn't actually accurate to say that it's always been this way. We may have had the cash bail system, but people who have not been found guilty of the charges against them account for 95% of all jail population growth between the years 2000 and the years 2014. 95%. We also really need to talk about the consequences of pretrial detention, which can be absolutely devastating. There are people who are held for years before they have their day in court. Sometimes their attorney can, you know, ask for a bond reduction or ask the judge to release them on their own recognizance. But often judges will deny those motions. And so people sit and sit and sit. And especially now when court dates are being postponed and delayed and continued because we are in a global pandemic, it's astounding. Further, if you are able to be released before your trial, that can have an incredible impact on what your ultimate sentence is. If you're out prior to your day in court, you can participate more fully in your legal, your legal team's work. You can make a case essentially for why you should continue to be allowed to stay out. So uh, for instance, if someone is released pretrial and they're able to get back into their job, maybe they have not had the opportunity to complete school. Say they use that time pretrial to get their GED or get a high school diploma. When they go back in front of the judge, they have the opportunity to make a case. Hey, judge, look what I've done in the time between me getting arrested and me standing in front of you now. I have changed my life. I am ready to contribute to my community. It would be setting me back, in fact, if you now, after I've made such strides forward, detained me again. 
compare that to a person who is held pre-trial. When they go in front of the judge, there is very, very little they can say to advocate them for themselves. And they haven't been able to participate fully in the investigation or the preparation for their sentencing. So they have a much different orientation toward the judge and the judge will have a much different orientation to them. I read an article from the American Bar Association that said that people who are detained before trial are over three times more likely to be sentenced to prison than people who are not detained. So in that sense, you're we're confirming that having money can increase your chances of not even having to face prison time or not even being sentenced to detention after uh, you are charged with a crime. Even 24 hours in jail can have collateral consequences that will far outlast just those 24 hours. In a way, being detained brings your life to like a screeching halt. People who are held pre-trial are often caregivers for their families or children. They might be the sole source of income in their household or otherwise just the core of their family. You know, they might be the peacemaker (laughs) if there's conflict in their family. And so essentially we're like uprooting people from situations that they're in and their lives and expecting everything to continue growing or moving forward after that. And it's not possible. People lose their jobs. They lose custody of their children. They lose access to health care. Being isolated for those periods of time can have undue impact on your mental health. It can ruin your relationships. You know, I, I can go on and on, but the, the main point is that detention does everything but keep us safe. You know, I think there's this idea that if, they, if you're holding someone behind the walls and you're keeping everyone else in the community safe, well, no, that person is a part of our community and maybe they were contributing to our community in the way that was helping their family or keeping their family on solid ground. And so now you're disrupting an entire ecosystem by detaining someone simply because they are alleged to have committed a crime. Another reason why we do this work is because it disproportionately impacts the lives of black and brown people. We are more represented in the court system, in the prison system, in this criminal punishment system in general, because our communities are so much more surveilled, it's not that we are violent or inherently deviant. We're doing the same things that other communities are doing, but we're the ones getting incarcerated for it. We're the ones being detained for it. And because we are already disenfranchised by our government, then it creates a cycle where, of course, we can't pay the bail on that charge. So now we're being held pre-trial. We get sentenced. Our lives have been disrupted. Then we get out. We can't catch back up. So we get arrested again. You know, it just creates a cycle that is incredibly unfair and doesn't really represent true danger or threat to our communities. It's it's really just an industry that is making money off of people, not helping, truly helping keep anyone safe. Let's talk about money for a moment, because this is something that was unclear to me when I started learning about cash bail. 
Who gets the money? Who's making money off the system? And why are cities so reticent to give up these systems? When you follow the money, where does it go? And where do bailout funds fit into this picture? The bail system is incredibly lucrative as an industry. The courts are making money. The jails are making money. The bails bonds people are making money. The people who insure the bails bonds people are making money. And bailout funds seek to disrupt that, like put roadblocks in all of those different players' ways. Because we are paying full cash bail for folks who are incarcerated with no expectation that the people we pay pay bail for, we call them our bail buddies, (laughs) with no expectation that our bail buddies will pay us anything. And so the money that we use to pay bail will eventually return to us and we will pay the next person's bail and the next person's bail. And that's, I think, the idea of bailout funds is that we are removing the needs for bail bonds people. We are further committing to the idea that pretrial detention is wrong and it is harmful. And so until that system is abolished, we're going to continue to free our people from the jail by paying their bail. And I think that is, for some folks, unheard of in a sense. I think we've had jail staff who are like, you're you're wanting to do what? <laughs> you know, we, you want to pay $10,000 for this person to get out of jail? It's unheard of because bail bonds people have absolutely dominated the release system. And so bailout funds are seeking to subvert that and be a presence in the community that people can rely on without having to be in debt to us. You know, we want to take care of our community in that way. And we want to make sure that people know that even after they get released, they are in community with us, that we can ask them to help us when we need it. And they can absolutely continue to ask us to help them. That's how communities should work. But with these systems, with cash bail, with pretrial detention, we have convinced the community that harming people, punishing people, detaining people, isolating people is the way to keep us safe. And that's not true. And I think absolutely what we do with bailout funds flies in the face of all of that. I asked Ashley to talk specifically about Black Mama's bailout, which is supported by the National Bailout, a Black-led, Black-centered collective of abolitionist activists, organizers, and legal experts. Black Mama's bailout is an example of an explicitly feminist action in support of some of the most marginalized people caught up in the cash bail system. Black Mama's bailout is, it's now a collective, I think, of bail funds and organizations that seek to bail out people who are mothers or caregivers, who are queer, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and are really trying to do the same work that I spoke of earlier, and that's disrupt cash bail. Black Mama's bailout really tries to make a a statement about how much of a crisis this is, that we are incarcerating people who are taking care of their families and that that has to stop. I do see this as a feminist issue because there is a long history of caregivers, especially Black caregivers, being 
removed from that role violently by the government, and in this case, by the police, by the courts. And for me, as a a queer Black woman, I am truly committed to keeping our communities and our families whole. And when we are ripping Black mothers away, when we are ripping Black fathers away, when we are ripping Black children from their homes, we are doing everything but being feminist. Okay, so we know the cash bail system is rotten. We know it exploits and targets Black and Brown and poor people. And we see the ways in which this is a feminist issue and a reproductive justice issue and an economic justice issue. What do we do now? Here are some of the recommendations that Ashley sees being talked about among the organizers she works with. And I will link a couple of toolkits in the show notes that provide some additional information about what you can do to disrupt the cash bail system in your community. Some of the popular bail reform efforts are around removing cash bail entirely. And there are a lot of opinions on that. And what that is often replaced with is giving maybe court administration or community organizations the jurisdiction to decide of whether or not someone is ready ready to be released. And the abolitionist way that could be done is by instead of saying, does this is this person going to be perfect when we release them? It's asking what does this person need? You know, do they need transportation? Do they need treatment? Do they need to be connected to folks in the community who they can talk to when they want to talk to, you know, simple things like that, that could circumvent having the need for cash bail. Like this person is about to be released. What do they need to get released and released safely? And then we just get that done. Other reform efforts, I think, involve definitely uh, appealing to the judges and asking the judges if someone does not have the capacity to pay cash bail to lower those bail amounts or remove them entirely and release people on their own recognizance. So you would do what's called in the federal system a signature bond. And a signature bond is that you sign your name saying that you're going to come back to court on on your day. And if you don't come back, you owe this amount. I mean, I think there are a variety of reforms that would hopefully not distract us from the ultimate goal, which is to get rid of cash bail entirely. I think that because the majority of people who are in jails are being held pretrial, getting rid of cash bail and then getting rid of pretrial detention would be a substantial decarceration move. And the less people in jail, the less the jail can sustain itself. So at some point, we're just going to have to knock down the entire jail, which is our hope. And so by highlighting the racist nature the harmful nature, the violent nature of cash bail, we are also saying that people should not be kept in cages. And I believe that's an abolitionist orientation to have. And it is, for some people, a new 
a very new thought and it is a scary thought. But I think we have to think about what our communities could be spending money on if it were not maintaining the jails and if it were not increasing our police forces. We could be spending money on increasing access to health care, mental health care, increasing access to food. And I feel like we can't continue to talk about public safety and what public safety means unless we talk about the reasons why people might feel unsafe. And I'm not talking about crimes. I'm talking about the needs we have that are not being met that cause us to feel isolated or abandoned. We have to address that. And the the conversation always centers around the people who commit crimes and not the cities that are committing crimes against humanity, essentially. No one is asking what the people who commit crimes need. And to me, that's a problem. We should be asking folks what they need from the outset before they even get to the point where they are charged with a crime so that we truly are keeping ourselves, our families, and our communities safe and getting rid of the need for police and prisons entirely. This work is so messy. (laughs) It's such uncharted territory in many ways. It's hard to, to imagine something different than what we have now because in many ways we haven't been given the space to to think about how things could look different. The ways that we operate now are so oppressive and so exhausting and so tiring that at the end of the day you're like, fuck no, I don't want to imagine a new world. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> and I, I just want to encourage folks that it is okay if the stuff is messy. We don't have all the answers. Every week when we meet as a team with the bailout, we are like laughing together and crying together and trying to figure out how to do this and how to do this well. And we we are honest with ourselves that we are going to make mistakes, that we don't know everything that's coming ahead, but we are ready to move and it is worthwhile to move. And I I just would encourage people, if there is something that is on your heart or that you are feeling in your spirit that you want to move, do it because it's worthwhile even if you don't know where to start. If you've been listening to me since the pandemic began, you know I have been talking about envisioning a different future and how important that is right now. I asked Ashley if she would share her vision of the future with us. My vision is that we create a world in which we are accountable to people who are the most impacted by the damages that these systems have done. And to start being accountable to those people would mean that we are automatically considering the desires the needs, the wants of people who are Black, people who are queer, people who are trans. I want to live in the world that those people need, that I need as a Black queer woman to feel safe and healthy and happy. And right now, the world that we are in is not that. And so when I'm thinking or feeling like this shit is impossible. (laughs) I think about all the 
the work that has been done by my Black ancestors who were also envisioning the same world that I am envisioning now. And I think about both the similarities of the moments that we are in to the moments that they were in. And I think about the distance that we have trekked from those moments and how far we have come. And I know absolutely that the vision I have for a world in which we are taking care of everyone and paying attention to everyone's needs is possible. All right, my friends, you heard Ashley. This change is possible. This world is possible. I hope you will add your voice, your energy, your imagination to building a world where we not only end the cash bail system, but where we invest in each other and in communities where we can keep each other safe without putting people in cages. For more information, check out the National Bailout Fund Network and also Southerners on New Ground, another organization Ashley recommends folks support for their amazing work reimagining life in the South through organizing that centers the lived experiences of queer people, working class people, and black and brown people. I will link both of these orgs, as well as a link to MGM Bailout, and to some articles about how you can get involved in confronting the cash bail system, all in the show notes. I want to extend a huge thank you to Ashley for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to me, and to everyone at MGM Bailout for your incredible work. I also want to say thank you to the new patrons who have joined the Feminist Hot Dog Pack in the last few weeks. Shout out to Kristen, Bal, Annika, Kara, and Dylan for all of your love and support. And finally, thank you listeners for coming on this ride with me as I dig into these topics that are so critical to our lives and to our ability to build a new, safer world. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. As always, until next time, love yourself and love your buns. This is Loudspeaker.